0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio
1: app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
0: Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app.
1: and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today, joining me in the studio, I have a friend and colleague, Dr. Brian Williams, who is also an Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at UMMC, and he has a special interest in travel medicine. And so that's what we're gonna be talking about today. And, you know, in all the years I've been doing this show, this is the first travel medicine show. So I'm super excited to learn some things. I know our listeners will learn some things as well. But first, just thanks for coming on and talking
2: with me today. Sure thing. We're setting the bar high. We,
1: we are. We are. We can only go up from here. All right, Brian, let's start with just a little bit about you, about what you do at UMC, and then what the heck is travel medicine?
2: Sure. Sure. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I graduated from the University of Mississippi Medical Center in 2003, and I did training in family medicine first, and that took me to Denver, Colorado, where I lived for basically most of the last 20 years. And while I was out there, um, just got more and more interested in travel. I mean, I didn't grow up traveling. I really didn't take my first overseas trip till I was done with high school and then sort of a trip to... uh, England sort of mm-hmm. sparked my interest in travel and said, hey, there's a great big world out there. But before that, it was just leisure travel. Yeah. Um, and so in 2014, I was uh, at this uh, School of Public Health and at the University of Colorado. And uh, my boss there, our professor said, uh, hey, are you interested in taking over this course that we have in the school for um, travel medicine? And so my partner there was a guy who had been a doc in the Air Force. And he was sort of one of those guys who got uh, pilots ready for uh, duty that if he was going to send them off uh, somewhere, he had to make sure they were ready to go. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of came at it from a leisure traveler standpoint. And he came at it from sort of this military background of uh, getting people ready for travel. He and I teamed up and we taught a course that actually is still ongoing. So even oh, wow. though I'm now in Mississippi again, um, uh, the ca- class goes on remotely without me. So um, we, we teach it online, which is great. And so it really started getting into sort of academic travel medicine. And we taught cl- a class to, you know, public health students who were interested in doing travel as part of their capstone for their master's of public health. And uh, after doing that for several years, I thought, well, you know, I should really try to incorporate this into my actual medical practice. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing it a bit more. And uh, as soon as I really started getting into it, it, it took off. I mean, I found out that it was something people really needed um, sometimes they don't know that they need it, but exactly. uh, we let them know that they needed <laughs> it's kinda it. It's
1: kind of like lifestyle medicine. You don't know you need it till you need it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, so yeah, started doing it as part of my practice and uh, things were going pretty well. And I, so in 2019, I got certified by the um, International Society of Travel uh, Medicine, where I took a course and completed a test to be a a certificate holder in travel health and that's something that you might find uh, in travel clinics around the world so you know something that really kind of helped launch me into the world of travel medicine where i could advertise myself a little more and then uh, 2020 rolled around covid came and everybody stopped traveling exactly so (laughs) yeah Yeah. not a good time for travel medicine
1: no no but now people are starting to move about the cabin more, you know, people Never. are out and about more. And so I think this is a great time to, to talk about it. And, you know, travel medicine as a term is probably one a lot of folks haven't even heard of. You know, I had a couple of folks ask me what I was going to be talking about today. And I said travel medicine. And they were like, oh, is that like travel nursing? Absolutely not. Right. Travel right. nursing is where nurses move about the country and fill, uh, fill gaps in in healthcare coverage. Uh, in different hospitals and go on assignment and those kinds of things not what we're talking about travel medicine is an actual specialty that really focuses on the health wellness and safety of people traveling that's right right? uh so now that we kind of know what travel medicine is who should see a travel medicine specialist
2: Yeah, I, I I agree. I think sometimes people think, well, you know, why do I need to come right. see somebody like you? I could just probably go to my regular doctor, and they can take care of it. And the or truth you might not
1: even think you need to go to a doctor at don't all. Don't think about it yeah. at all.
2: And the the truth about it is, is the vast majority of people who travel overseas end up not actually having needed travel medicine beforehand because nothing happens on their trip. And thankfully, um, even though some. Overseas travel seems exotic um, and potentially dangerous. Most of the time, everything goes well. And that's great. Uh, And and we can thank a lot of, you know, safety features with transportation Mm -hmm. and also advances in medications and vaccines that make going to those parts of the world where it was once really dangerous from an infectious disease standpoint, much, much safer. Um, And so really who I stress travel medicine to, what I primarily do is what I call pre-travel counseling. So I'm actually talking to people before they go on their trip. Ideally, they would come to me four to six to even eight weeks before travel, just in case they need a vaccine series that takes a few doses to complete. Mm -hmm. But overwhelmingly, what I talk to people about is just the safety component of travel. Um, Because... Believe it or not, the biggest risk for most travelers when they go overseas is a very mundane thing like having a, a traffic accident. Right. Um, and so being injured or killed in a traffic accident, unfortunately, is the number one way that American tourists overseas die. It's not from some tropical exotic disease. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why that could be the case. And so I talked to them about those reasons, like, uh, you know, in some parts of the developing world, cars aren't as safe. Uh, the roads aren't as safe. And the big piece is there's not really the same emergency medical response um, that you're going to get in the U.S. or uh, other parts of the really advanced, uh, you know, Western world. And so what I kind of coach people on is being a little more self-reliant, being um, able to treat common conditions that they're going to encounter themselves, but also try to avoid a situation where they might be um, injured or fall unnecessarily ill during their travel.
1: Yeah, and that's a really good point that you bring up that – the majority of of kind of injuries and and bad things that happen are in transportation over there, you know. And I can think of a a variety of ways that that could occur. You know, for our honeymoon um, many years ago, we went um, to the Virgin Islands, and that was our first kind of experience outside of the mainland U.S., you know. And I don't know how we didn't fall off the side of a cliff. And, I mean, (laughs) those buses that took us from the airport to the uh, resort, the roads were very narrow. And— they were going both ways, and mm-hmm. I didn't think it looked wide enough for one thing to be on it, much less two things to be on it. And people are just tooting the horns, and no, there were no stoplights, uh, no stop signs. It was sure. just a suggestion it, that you stop here, and you know you may or may not have done that. Seatbelts weren't as much of a thing, you know. It just right. if you've not traveled outside of kind of the continental U.S., you you fail to think about the fact that not everywhere. Has all the stuff that we have as right. just standard daily practice, you know? And those things you can't ne- necessarily control, but you can be aware of them, especially um, when they drive on the different side of the road, yeah, the, you know? the
2: other side of the road,
1: the other side of the
2: road. Yeah. So about 40% of the world or the world's population lives in a country where they drive on the left. So it's mostly British and mm-hmm. British sort of former colonies. So you bring up another good point. When I was in the Bahamas, they it's a British was a British holding. So they drive on the left, but they get most of their cars from the US. So the driver's on the left and then they're driving on the left. So oh the driver gosh. can't see. And, you know, not maybe in uh, downtown Nassau, but in some of the out islands, people are pulling way out into the other lane just Mm -hmm. to see whether they can pass. Exactly. So, yeah, that's it. I I tell travelers, especially if you're going with children, like, have you thought about taking your own car seat or booster seats? Because, again, something that you're not likely to find. You, you may not find seatbelts, and I, I am the guy who's waiting there uh, when the taxi or the Uber pulls up, and I'm like digging the seatbelts oh, yeah, out from too. under the back seat for me and my family because, mm-hmm. again, you know, you you, you want to be as safe as possible. You, oh, yeah. you can't protect yourself against any and everything, but that that is one to me that transportation. The other thing that happens when they drive on the left or the wrong side of the road is <laughs> you you look the wrong way exactly. when you cross traffic. So if you've ever been to London or other parts of the UK, they actually painted on the sidewalk you know it says look right and Mm -hmm. then it says look left because we and in continental Europe too but we look the wrong way because the cars are coming from the opposite direction so it's dangerous when you're a pedestrian, but it's also dangerous if you're on a bicycle or a scooter, which is sort of a common mode of transportation for tourists. In some countries, you, if you're not a resident, you can't rent a car, but mm-hmm. they will allow you to rent a scooter. So mm-hmm. you see a lot more tourists on scooters, and these may be people who've never ridden a scooter in their With life. With
1: not a helmet in sight. <laughs> I know. I, I, uh, we just went to, to Washington, D.C. Uh, last week, and everybody was on scooters and Segways, and there was not a helmet anywhere. And my kids kept going, why can't we get one of those? And I said, "Baby." because they don't rent helmets and you only have one head. So we're not getting on that. Kind of the last kind of question I'd have about just the the general travel medicine stuff is how soon in advance of your trip would you need to consult with a travel medicine provider?
2: Yeah, I mean – Anytime is a good time, and we really can give valuable advice even if somebody shows up the day before they leave for the airport because then you can still talk about road safety and seatbelts. You can still give someone a prescription for traveler's diarrhea, which is far and away the most common ailment they're likely to have. Um, You could maybe do a quick check of vaccines and see is it worth giving one as they kind of head out the door. Mm -hmm. Um, But ideally, they come – two months before, but that's often a stretch. Um, A great example is if you need, say, the yellow fever vaccine Mm -hmm. before your trip, it's not valid until it's been 10 days since you received it. So that's a big one. So 10 days is sort of a go, no go if Mm -hmm. your country that you're traveling to requires yellow fever vaccine for travel and, and many around the world do. Uh, but the other thing to know is that ideally it's sort of that six to eight week right. mark because sometimes it's a two dose vaccine that you want to get before you actually leave on your trip.
1: Wonderful. And we're talking travel medicine today, and that really is focused on the health, wellness and safety of travelers, largely international travel. Uh, if you have an upcoming trip or you learned something on a past trip that you wish you had known beforehand, that would have helped you stay well email me anytime it doesn't have to be when we're on the air that's fit at mpbonline.org you kind of alluded to the fact that the number one health problem that people encounter when they are traveling is something called traveler's diarrhea which sounds fantastic <laughs> tell me about what that is
2: yeah it goes by all kinds of colorful names yes. around the world but um we'll just stick to uh, calling it traveler's diarrhea yes. for the sake of our listeners okay um So traveler's diarrhea is this classic notion that when you travel, you're more likely to pick up some sort of germ, a bug, whatever you want to call it, that gives you some type of GI illness. And that might be nausea and vomiting. It might be diarrhea. It might be nausea, vomiting and diarrhea. Especially you're when you're you get super the, lucky if you get all yeah, three. When you get the trifecta, yeah. you can really get dehydrated yeah. and get super sick. I mean, for the for the most part, traveler's diarrhea is self-limiting, meaning even if you don't do anything about it, it's likely to resolve on its own. Um, the trouble is, is that might take two or three or four days. Right. And if you have a week's vacation to Mexico, uh, then you spend four of those days in the hotel room, uh, you know, you've basically ruined your whole trip. Right. So – I really stress to people, look, to maximize your fun on your trip, what you really want to do is try to limit the risk of getting traveler's diarrhea and then know what to do about it if you do get it. So very briefly, you know, if you get sick in the U.S., which you can do and have some sort of GI upset, diarrhea-type illness, it's just overwhelmingly more likely to be viral. And there's really not as much you can do about that. But yeah, when you've got to ride it out. Ride it out. But when you go overseas, um, a lot of – the illnesses that you can contract that would make you sick with traveler's diarrhea tend to be bacterial. So one is – and that's just primarily because of sanitation reasons, but that's sort of outside of the control of the people who live there. But the other thing is, is some of it's just geographic. And so, you know, here daily we're bombarded by germs, but our immune systems are kind of coached up to what to do for those germs. Then you go halfway around the world and suddenly you're seeing new things. Different germs. Different germs. You would eventually build up some immunity to that, but uh, it's not going to happen during the course of your trip. So first and foremost, about half of travelers, if you just go look across the board, about half of travelers are going to get traveler's diarrhea. That doesn't mean that you're 50% likely to get it on any given trip or that one out of every two people in your group is going to get it, but half. Right
1: now, I'm feeling pretty lucky. (laughs)
2: Lucky. (laughs) Yeah. So you hope that you and your family of four survive and it's four other people who got sick, right? Yep. Um, Sorry. (laughs) The other interesting thing is that it doesn't really matter where people stay. So if you stay in a youth hostel or a five-star resort, you're still about 50-50. Most people are good at sort of the old mantra of like, don't drink the water. People are good at that. But there's also water in other forms. So ice in your drinks is one common way. But a lot of it's food. And it's not just the food that you eat, but it's also all the things that you touch when you're getting Mm -hmm. ready to eat. That's the menus and the salt shakers and the things that nobody ever cleans. Mm-hmm. Um, you I, know. D- I do.
1: Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm awkward to travel with because I am wiping that stuff down. and I don't care who looks at me. Maybe that's why I haven't gotten the traveler's diarrhea.
2: Well, and there are definitely some protective things you can do. So the far and away the most important thing to do is wash your hands frequently. Mm-hmm. I think what happens to people too is when you've been told over and over again don't drink the water, you kind of fall into this trap of thinking that the water is dirty that
1: you can't wash your hands with the water but if you
2: wash with soap and water and dry your hands with something clean your hands are really clean Mm -hmm. especially compared to where they were before you washed them another tip is like in a lot of places, the only option is a buffet. So if you're in mm-hmm. an all-inclusive resort or if you're at some you know, out-of-the-way place at a hotel, that might be the only thing there is to eat. So if you go to a travel medicine conference, they'll tell you, hey, don't eat at buffets. But sometimes that's literally the only oh, choice. The only
1: option. Don't starve.
2: So the thing to know is, is that a lot of times what it is is not the food itself, but it's all the things. It's all the tongs and mm-hmm. spoons and everything that everyone in front of you has touched. So often what I'll do if I'm eating at a buffet is I will just serve myself and then I go back to the table and I either use hand sanitizer or I go to the bathroom and wash my hands. The rule is if you can see dirt on your hands, you should wash with soap and water. And then you should use some hand sanitizer on top of that if you want. So washing your hands frequently just during your travels, but also right before you eat, trying to make sure that the things on your table are as clean as possible, like you said. Um, And then, you know, sort of hot food should be hot. Cold food should be cold. Probably the biggest no-no when you travel besides don't drink the water is um, try to eat – like try to avoid eating leafy greens or um, vegetables that need to be washed and eaten raw or fresh. Because mm-hmm. if they're not cooked, you'd sort of lose the chance to decon- decontaminate the food. Mm-hmm. And if it's just washed off with the water that, again, you're not really used to, right. that can make you sick in and of itself. So I, I'm a pretty adventurous eater when I travel – But I generally stick to the avoid leafy greens Mm -hmm. um, just because there's so many crevices that it really holds the water. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's
2: a big one. I mean, you know, fruits you can peel yourself are safe. Um, And beyond that, it's sort of like if it's hot and ready, if they put it in front of you and it's steaming hot, what do you do? Go ahead and eat Eat it. It's probably the safest thing. A lot of times people are worried about things like coffee and tea if you're like me and you've got to have your cup of coffee first thing in the morning. Generally, even if the water hasn't been boiled, it's probably hot enough Mm -hmm. to kill most of the things that are in it. If someone pours you a steaming hot cup of coffee, just let it sit there for a minute and the heat from the hot water will generally kind of work to decontaminate. Is it as good as boiling? No, but it's better than just drinking it.
1: And it's better than seeing me without coffee in the morning. (laughs) All right, before we get into treatment of Traveler's Diarrhea, we do have a caller on the line. So we're going to go to Mike in Meridian. Good morning. How can we help you today?
0: Hi, good morning. Thanks for your topic.
1: Today. Absolutely.
0: Uh, question is centered on insurance or medical evacuation mm-hmm. when you're traveling out and about the world. Uh, I guess, is it worth it?
2: Yeah, great question. Uh,
0: have recommendations uh, yeah. any, any pitfalls to watch
1: out for absolutely turning it over to you brian because i know we've already talked about this so i know the answer but you go ahead and tell everybody else
2: yeah it's, it's a great question and i do usually spend some time talking about it during a consultation one of those is um number one make sure that the travel insurance that you're buying is exactly what you're mentioning which is evacuation insurance i mean People are happy to sell you the type of insurance that ensures that if you had to cancel your trip, you might get some or all of your money back for the flights and hotel rooms and things like that. But that's not what I'm talking about. And it's not what you're talking about either. Um, Travel. So medical evacuation insurance is um, incredibly important for a big trip overseas, particularly if you're going somewhere that's less developed. Mm So I'm thinking, uh, you know parts of southeast asia sub-saharan africa south uh, south america places where you know getting back to the u.s or somewhere in western europe might be difficult um, and more than about a day's worth Um, if you've got to fly out of a place it's really expensive Um, and again that's not going to be covered by your personal medical insurance in the united states it's not going to be covered by the trip the tour operator Mm -hmm. that you booked your trip with um, Pre-COVID, travel ev- Evacuation insurance was actually Really cheap because most People don't need it um, But if you need it, it's really Expensive, so I generally Do, um, there's a couple of uh, The one that it comes to mind that I've Recommended to people that I think works pretty well Is called, um, I think it, you just say it Alliance or Al- Alliance A-L-L-I-A-N-Z um, The one I use is actually Provided by Dan, which is The Diver's Alert Network um, I'm a diver, and but it covers everybody. I'm learning in my, all
1: kinds of things about you today. Yeah,
2: okay. It covers everybody in your party, and you don't have to be a diver to buy Dan um, insurance. And so, if you are a diver, it's great because they can also help you find like a decompression chamber mm-hmm. if you have a dive problem, but just for evacuation as well. So. Those are the two that I know. Now, sometimes you'll see it as like a little rider or like a little add-on if you book a big trip through a travel agent or um, even an online site like, um, you know, one of the online.
1: Like an Expedia or something something like like that. that.
2: You'll see it as an add-on. And as long as it includes um, medical evacuation insurance, not just travel insurance, it's usually a pretty safe bet because evacuating can be.
1: Yeah.
2: $100,000.
1: And you say the word evacuation, it sounds like a a natural disaster has occurred and we need to be evacuated. But we're really just talking about getting back home to continue Mm -hmm. your medical treatment. You know, it may be that you need surgery or you're going to be in the hospital for a while and that would be better for you back in the States. And so being able to get back home for those things.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: Yep. All right, Mike, did that help?
2: Yes, it does. Thank you. You're so welcome.
1: Thank you so much for giving us a call today. All right. Turning back to everybody's favorite topic, traveler's diarrhea. Um, Let's say the the worst has happened and you did all the things you're supposed to do, or maybe you didn't do them, and you now have the cramping, the, the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea, that kind of stuff. What do we do?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing you got to try to do is stay hydrated. But again, if you're in a place where you're not Not readily able to drink out of the tap, um, that means bottled water somehow, or at least filtered water. Mm -hmm. So staying hydrated is one. Um, I generally do tell people that, you know, your first line of defense can be over-the-counter things like Imodium for diarrhea or Pepto-Bismol for nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Those things can help. Um, You can actually use Pepto-Bismol prophylactically. Mm -hmm. So you can use some Pepto, the chewable tablets are usually a good idea to take along. So what I'll do is maybe morning and night on a trip, um, I'll go ahead and just chew up one of those as a preventive measure. Um, And if I start feeling a little queasy, then maybe I'll take another dose or even a fourth at night before I go to bed. One of the things I stress to people too is, is, you know, it's all about a lot of it's about whether it's going to be a major inconvenience. So if the If you start feeling sick to your stomach and then you know you're going to spend the next day on a bus or (laughs) on a boat, you definitely want to treat yourself. And so if you are having breakthrough symptoms despite over-the-counter things that you've brought along with you like Imodium and Pepto-Bismol, then I usually do sort of arm people with the ability to dose themselves with an antibiotic. Um, You know, Cipro was the standard for a long, long time, Mm -hmm. and it's a really – it's a good medicine because it treats lots of things, but there's also some emerging resistance in parts of the world. So an alternative to Cipro is azithromycin, which is the same thing you might find in a Z-Pack. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can give um, a one gram dose and it, you take it once and that's it. And oh. so for most travelers, I will give people two separate complete treatments. So they could treat themselves in the beginning of a trip. And if they were unfortunate enough to get sick again, treat themselves again, or, um, or perhaps treat someone else in their party. Mm-hmm. I usually also offer people um, an antiemetic, so an anti-nausea, anti-vomiting medicine. Um, and so that that's something I would only do with sort of discussion. Mm-hmm. But you know, it really can save you a lot of grief. And I think too, as somebody who. It's going on a trip with additional medical knowledge. Like I would feel comfortable also using it with somebody in my party, not necessarily a family member. I, I was on a medical mission years ago in Peru and we were on a bus and like half the people on the bus were sick. And so we just sort of started triaging Who has on the medicine?
1: bus. Everybody empty their pockets.
2: <laughs> That's exactly what we yeah, were doing. Absolutely.
1: So, yeah. Well, It's a good point that you mentioned, like bringing it with you, right? Because even if you're traveling to a country that has a very modern healthcare system, it is not the same healthcare system that you are used to operating in. And the medicines, while the classes are the same, don't have the same names. So, you know, we went to... um Paris, last year, we've been to Paris before, very comfortable moving around in, in Paris and um, speaking very poor French mm-hmm. and, and those kinds of things. And over there, the pharmacists, well, first of all, there's a pharmacy on every corner. It's a big green cross. You can't miss it. But the pharmacists there almost act like... um kind of like walk-in docs sometimes you know they have the ability to prescribe things and treat minor conditions over over the counter Uh, and you can go in and kind of tell them your symptoms and they'll be like oh this is what you need you know now I guess they don't have HIPAA. I don't know. But they will just be like, show it to me. And just in the aisle of the pharmacy, you're just like rolling up your sleeve and showing them stuff. One time that I saw somebody getting their ear examined in the, in the hallway. But, you know, they can prescribe you different kinds of things. But, you know, uh, my husband got like a, a cut and it was looking like it was getting a little little icky, so I wanted some like some triple antibiotic ointment. And I went in and I asked for triple antibiotic ointment and they looked at me like I was insane. And I said, you know, like neosporin and that got me nowhere. And you know, they gave me something that was not really what I wanted. So I ended up just sitting in the aisle and reading the back of every package that was there. And eventually I found a medicine that sounded slightly familiar. I knew the end of the word meant antibiotic. And so I was like, score, we've got it. But That was somebody who knows medicine names, you know, so little things like Neosporin and Benadryl cream and, you know, blister pads and all of those things can really save you time and a lot of stress trying to communicate with somebody that you may not speak their language very well.
2: Yeah, I agree. To me, it all comes back to convenience and the fact that you're trying to maximize your vacation. Most of us aren't able to take a month long vacation and sort of ride out these storms or spend your day. You know, finding a pharmacy right. and deciphering the medications right. on the back of the packages. Yeah. So I agree. To me, it's if if you have any medical condition that you normally self treat, like if you're someone who has asthma, yeah, take obviously take along your inhaler. But if you've occasionally had to take a steroid burst to treat that asthma, you know, talk Go to somebody about taking it with you. Yeah. Um, and the same goes for just those common ailments. I mean, ibup- some ibuprofen and some Tylenol, tylenol and yeah. Some Benadryl, as you say, Benadryl is a great catch-all because it's good for itchy rashes, it's good for allergies, and it's also good in a pinch as a sleep aid.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
2: So as an example, you mentioned your, your uh, trouble in Paris, and I had a good friend who is also a physician and should know better, but he <laughs> went to Spain um, and was in Barcelona and got sick in his hotel room and he stayed there basically for two days kind of waiting for this to pass. And finally he called down to the hotel desk and said, can you please send someone to see me? And they did and it cost him 150 euros and another day of his time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they gave him some medications that could, he could have easily taken along right, with him. Right. So yeah, I think to me it's just maximizing your time. Just and a little bit
1: of planning on the front end. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell. And joining me here in the studio today, I have Dr. Brian Williams, and we are talking all about travel medicine, and we've had a great uh, discussion about how we prevent some of the most common things that happen to travelers when they are out of the U.S. uh, We're kind of talking about traveler's diarrhea and some, you know, asking for these kind of prescription medications to, to take with you. We also talked about some over-the-counter stuff that just makes good sense to take with you, Tylenol, ibuprofen, Benadryl, different creams and whatnot, uh, blister packs. And then one thing that kind of we usually take with us is the little packets of Pedialyte, the the powdered packets. Because if you do have diarrhea, just like you mentioned, most of the time it's going to run its course. But what gets you in trouble is the dehydration, right? And if you're having a a lot of, you know, large volume diarrhea, this is a great topic to be talking about. I know all of our listeners are like, how many times is she going to say that word? But if you're having that problem, we want to get you better as soon as we can. And rehydration is really important. And so absolutely plain water is good. But if you're having a lot of that, and especially if you're having some vomiting on top of it, you're losing a lot of electrolytes, a lot of salts. And so replacing those is important. And, you know, here in the state, A lot of folks would reach for a sports drink like a Gatorade or a Powerade. If you're having diarrhea, I usually don't really like those that much because they have a fair amount of sugar in them. And sometimes that can make uh, diarrhea a little bit worse. But uh, Pedialyte is a a good option for that. And, of course, you can't bring a big jug of Pedialyte on the plane. You'd get in trouble. But the little packets are shelf-stable, and you can just throw those in your bag, and that way you can add them to a bottle of water if you need it. All right, the next thing we're going to talk about is vaccines because in my head – When I first started thinking about travel medicine, I was like, oh, that's just for if you need a vaccine when you're going somewhere. And that's absolutely part of it. But how would you know if you needed a vaccine?
2: Yeah, good question. I mean, it's definitely the biggest driver that would cause somebody to think they needed to see a travel specialist, you know, and and I often would resist the idea of people calling up and saying, well, I know which vaccines Mm -hmm. I need, so will you just order those for me? Because I really did want to have a conversation with them and say, yeah, vaccines, but let's also talk about safety. Let's also talk about traveler's diarrhea and those things. But you're right. It's certainly the biggest driver. Um, To me, the one that comes to mind the most is for yellow fever, Mm -hmm. which, as I mentioned earlier, can be required for entry into certain countries. So that is a very specialized vaccine. And it really does typically require you to see a specialist because it's not available in most primary care right. offices. Like I don't
1: stock yellow fever vaccine in right. my clinic.
2: And one of the reasons is because there are some potential side effects of the vaccine that need to be discussed ahead of time. Um, and so that's a big one. And, uh, you know, where do you find this information? Well, if you think you might need it, the CDC has a pretty good travel site that they've actually made more user friendly. Um, It was always good for providers, but the the sort of Mm layperson on the other side of that would now the information is a lot more discernible. But it does get complicated because if you have a multiple stop itinerary, like if you're going to several places, then that can get really complex about whether one country might require you to show proof of yellow fever vaccine if you're going between two countries rather Mm -hmm. than just straight from the United States in. Um, So yellow fever is the biggest one. Another people ask frequently about is malaria, which is actually not prevented by a vaccine. It's prevented by pills that are prescribed. But I would say yellow fever, malaria, kind of classic tropical diseases. Those are those are two that tend to drive people to a travel specialist, whether they need Pills for malaria and whether they need um, vaccine for yellow fever. The truth is, though, is there's some other much more common things that we also will discuss. And so, for example, um, hepatitis A and hepatitis B vaccines are now standard for most kids, but they weren't for anyone sort of born pre 1985. And so, most adults have never had a yellow, or sorry, a hepatitis A vaccine, or and possibly not a hepatitis B vaccine. So most travelers aren't at great risk for contracting hepatitis b which tends to be blood born yeah but you know people do sometimes require medical procedure if you've had some sort of accident and so the last thing you want is to bring home something like that but hepatitis a is much more common it's sort Foodborne. of it, it's in that yeah. food and waterborne family the same way that people get traveler's diarrhea they can also get um, hepatitis a so that's one i stress to people if you've never had it And another kind of classic, hepatitis A is sort of the classic travel vaccine, and the other is typhoid, um, which there is a vaccine for. So typhoid and its cousin, paratyphoid, are called um, enteric fevers. And so the enteric fevers are, um, again, usually they can be bacterial, and and so it's something that you would get from food and water. It doesn't always cause a traveler's diarrhea-type picture, fevers and abdominal pain sometimes, Um, So way better to prevent it than to try to treat it after the fact, again, as there as there is emerging um, resistance to um, antibiotics in parts of the world. So particularly uh, India and Southeast Asia, I really stress typhoid vaccine for people going to those parts of the world.
1: Wonderful. We've got a couple callers on the line. So we'll start in uh, Yazoo County and say good morning to Bell. How can we help you?
0: Hi, I wanted to make a, a couple of statements and sure. then a question. Okay. Uh, a friend and I took a ship from Kaohsiung, Taiwan, years ago, and we got drumming me to take a ship a few hours out to the Pescadores or Penghu mm-hmm. Islands. By the way, it had pink beachy, beaches.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, we had no trouble with seasickness. Good. And uh, I haven't heard this. Uh, uh, I would say, too, if you're going, like, especially anywhere, um, start out eating bland food. And then I have a question. Okay. Uh, um, Like I used to hear, if you were taking a long flight, then take aspirin ahead to prevent thrombosis. And I wonder if there's anything to that. I'll take the answer on the radio. Uh
1: All right. Thank you for giving us a call, Bill. I'll start with the first thing. She mentioned dramamine, which is a very kind of common over-the-counter medicine that you can get kind of in the same family of things like Benadryl like you mentioned so it's a um, antihistamine that can help with can actually help with nausea helps with motion sickness those types of things Um, also uh, meclizine which is Antivert uh, can be used for that and then if you are like I'm sick and I can't swallow then there's also scopolamine patches that can be prescribed that you put on kind of behind your ear and that's something that would probably be a good idea if you've never been on a cruise ship before just to see how you're going to do with that but um the second part of that question brian turning it back over to you
2: yeah so um i think that we we, that has been studied as as far as like taking an aspirin before Mm -hmm. and generally if you have not ever had a blood clot then you probably don't need to do that um but bell brings up a good point which is that it, it is an actual risk. So mm-hmm. um, if you're on a what's called a long haul flight, so that's anything that's over four hours, your risk of getting a blood clot does go up pretty um, considerably. Mm-hmm. The risk is still actually very, very low. But as compared to you and me sitting here right now, it right. goes up quite a bit. So generally, you don't need to premedicate with aspirin. But what you should do is a stay hydrated, we used to think that getting dehydrated might have been a risk factor. The more they've looked at that, the more they thought, well, maybe all we did was make people get up and go to the bathroom. So we told them to drink water and they just had to <laughs> go to the to bathroom yep. And because that really is the mm-hmm. best treatment is getting up and walking at least once during those long flights. So anything more than four hours, you should plan to get up. But honestly, even in your seat, just lifting your legs so the backs of your legs aren't just pressed against the bottom of the seat the whole time. So lifting your legs, pumping your feet back and forth underneath mm-hmm. the seat in front of you if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, We'll, yeah. we'll uh, help that as well. But yeah, just get up and walk at yeah. least once during yeah. the flight.
1: And, you know, so when we fly over to France is the place we go most. We do like every, you know, my my little, the little Apple Watch still dings at you and tells you stand up, you know. And so we kind of keep that rhythm where we at least stand, you know, unbuckle, stand up, move our legs around, those kinds of things. And then I actually, I try and get a spot in the back because the, like the galley is back there, like the little kitchen area. And so there's more room. So I can actually like get up and like. Yeah bend over and touch my toes and do some different things. Um, But getting up is the most important part or just moving those legs. And that is the same if you're doing a long, car ride like it's it's not there's nothing super special about being in the airplane it's just about being sedentary and not using those muscles it's why when you're in the hospital we come make you move your legs around or we put those super awesome um, sleeves on your legs that that squeeze and people fall into one of two camps they hate that or they love that and I I love that it's like a little massage and we have a very patient caller who's been hanging on for us we're going to go to Sally in Waveland good morning Sally how can we help you
0: Hi, um, I have a son uh, that's in a wheelchair, and we are going to be traveling to France, and I wanted to see um, what we need to do special for him. Of course, you know, we we know to stay in places that's wheelchair accessible and stuff like that, but I just wanted to see what y'all have to say about that. Absolutely.
1: Sure. All right, Dr. Williams.
2: Yeah, great question. Um, and I I find this type of thing to be a common, um, maybe it's a surprise to a lot of Americans who travel overseas for the first time that, you know, things just aren't as they are here. And that's part of the fun of travel. But, um, you know, looking for things like ADA accessibility in many parts of the world, you just won't find it. And even somewhere like France, which is obviously very developed and, and you know, very modern, still, um, some of the Places that you want to see there are very ancient, in fact. So cobblestone streets um, are, would be something that just immediately come to mind, that type of thing. It's like you're just not used to that. So I would say probably, um, yes, your accommodations would definitely need to ha- have wheelchair accessibility. I would think maybe this would be the opportunity to, um, before you travel, talk to the airline. um, And that may be something that you're used to already. But I would also say this is a good chance to perhaps do organized tours Mm -hmm. um, and plan ahead. I I actually, when I travel, generally like to try to figure it out on my own. But I've also found over the years that sometimes my kids are more engaged if we do an actual tour where somebody's leading us and telling us some behind-the-scenes things. But I think in your case – You know, I I don't know how old your son is, but depending on his interest level, I would still consider guided tours, um, which generally aren't terribly expensive if you do a little pre-planning, because the tour guide would typically know where uh, accessibility points were. Is there an elevator that can be used? Can we um, go in the back way that might not be otherwise um, accessible to somebody who just showed up and was going to do a self-guided tour?
1: Yeah. And and those are, are my recommendations as well. You know, in terms of accommodations, I would probably stick more to kind of those brand hotels that also have hotels in, in the States versus a little tiny boutique hotel or renting an apartment. Like we love to rent an apartment when we go to France, but they're are not elevators in those apartment buildings or if they are, they are literally the size of one very small person. Like <laughs> The first time we went, we put our luggage in it and sent it up um, without us because the luggage and us would not fit in there so <laughs> it was it was quite a learning curve as well as you know not everywhere tends to have ramps and that kind of stuff that's so readily apparent here so you know a little bit of if there's something very specific that you're wanting to see you know looking on the website beforehand to see if there's any mention of that and then if not reaching out to one of those um, either a travel agency or the tour groups there um, to see how you know what accessibility options Will be available so that you don't um, you don't miss out on seeing the things that you want to see. But man, have a wonderful time! If you need to travel with a nurse Thank practitioner, you. you can pack me. Uh, my passport is good <laughs> and valid. <laughs> thanks,
0: thanks for everything. I appreciate it. Yes, Bye-bye. ma'am.
1: Thank you. I always say you should, you should fly with a nurse. We're super helpful to have along for the ride. All right. We've got just a few minutes left in the show, um, but there is a program called the STEP program that I wanted to make sure that we talked about, right? Oh yeah. So kind of red, kind of letting, letting your government know that you're going to be
2: there, right? Yeah. It's one of the things I advise people to do, you know, before they travel. So again, all of this is primarily done as a pre-travel consultation and i tell people things like uh, the earlier caller asked about travel insurance i usually do talk about that and i also recommend the step program so that's the smart traveler enrollment program is through the u.s state department and it the, the advantage of enrolling in the step is that the u.s government knows where you are basically and not that sound like big brother but the nice part about it is is that if there was some sort of disaster or emergency then they would be more able to help you i mean if you show up at your uh at the consulate they're going to try to help you but mm-hmm. if they already know that you're there they're, it's going to be easier for them to contact you it's going to be easier for them to get you you know somewhere if there was a, if there was some sort of disaster or global you know event or something uh, you know god forbid of course but the other thing I tell people to do is you know so state department step step program is a good place to register your trip ahead of time and then the other is you know old fashioned days it was like make photocopies of all your documents what I tell people to do now is actually to Use your smartphone, take photos of all of your documents, and then email them to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that way, even if you lost your phone or the phones weren't working for some reason, usually you could go to like an internet cafe and right. access your own email and download your photos. Because mm-hmm. if you have all that stuff, it just makes it much easier to replace a lost passport or to, you know, um, you know, figure out your accommodations if something happened that otherwise disrupted your trip. Yeah,
1: and I really do recommend taking pictures of your passport, uh, you know, in terms of personal safety and being uh, robbed or any of those kinds of things. Usually it's not recommended that you walk around with your passport, but you also want to be able to prove, uh, you know, your citizenship in a, in a particular country. So taking a picture of that or having a photocopy of your passport and then keeping your real one, uh, hopefully in locked safe in your um, in your accommodations is really the way to go there Um, because you just you you know it's sometimes it seems overkill when you start to to think about all these things but it's really not you know um, you you want to be over prepared versus under prepared you know we always say that you know an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and it really does you know kind of flow into that. All right, Brian, this was a quick hour. That means I'm going to have to have you back for Travel Medicine 2.0. But thanks to the listeners who give us such great uh, calls and questions. Also, thank you for listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. And remember, if you missed any of today's show and you want to catch it, you can do that by downloading our podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app. And tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPP